Welcome to the New Books Network. Odysseus to me is a figure who wrestles with reality. Okay, like like he, he's wounded and is when he's young because he's hunting a wild boar and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, he's going to take his licks. He's going to prove himself and sort of wrestling with reality. And one of the professors said, kind of postmodern guy, he said, well, what is reality? Like, what do you mean by reality? What is reality? I think the correct answer to that is, I'm not entirely sure, but I know it's something. <laughs> Philosophy professor Jacob Howland applies the lessons of Greek classics and Jewish scripture to this curious moment at the dawn of artificial intelligence, when computers are doing more and more work for us, and we humans, like miniature gods, can make up new simulated realities and even identities for ourselves. There's a word for it when people worship the things they create. That word is idolatry. And looking to the Bible and the classics, Professor Howland and I talk it over on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics, about religion and history and culture. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about big, interesting questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, my guest is Jacob Howland. He's Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and past chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion at the University of Tulsa. He's also professor at the University of Austin, UATX, and director of the Intellectual Foundations Program, which comprises the first two years of undergraduate curriculum. He's also senior fellow at the Tikva Fund, and he's the author of five books and one edited book. His most recent book is called Glaucon's Fate, History, Myth, and Character in Plato's Republic. He's written and lectured on Plato, Aristotle, Xenophon, Kierkegaard, as well as on the Hebrew scriptures and on the Talmud. Today, I'd like to talk about his recent article, AI is a False Prophet, Our Enslavement to Idolatry Will End in Disaster, at unheard.com. I'll attach this link below and a few other links to, uh, to articles that Professor Howland has written that inform our discussion and my questions for him. So welcome, Professor Howland. Oh, it's great to be here, Chris. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me. So usually uh, I like to start with a joke and given our topic, I thought I'd ask uh, ChatGPT to give me a joke about a rabbi, a priest and an AI who walk into a bar. And so this is what uh, I got from OpenAI. Um, a rabbi, a priest and an AI walk into a bar. The bartender looks at them and asks, what can I get you folks? The priest replies, I'll have a glass of wine, please. The rabbi says, I'll take a kosher beer. Thank you. The AI chimes in. As for me, I'll have some data. Just feed me all your jokes and I'll analyze them for maximum humor. The bartender chuckles and says, well, I'm not sure about the AI, but we'll keep on serving you drinks until we have a holy good time. Some real divine comedy. <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> so ai can do some things i don't know that it can tell jokes yeah yeah um but, but that's that's where that's what i got from them um your article is not only about ai which a lot of people are talking about but about idolatry the combination of two words edelon and latria and what we make of them so would you tell us what is an idol and why do we make yeah well that's I mean, it's easier to say to answer the first question than it is the second one, which is a really big one. Um, so yeah, this is a combination of two Greek words. An edelon is is a phantom or an insubstantial form. Um, what do we mean by insubstantial? Like a reflection in water. You know, it's it's sort of purely superficial. It doesn't have any substance. Um, 
And Latreia means service. It's the sort of condition of servitude, perhaps mm -hmm. of a slave, but it also applies to divine service, right? Um, now, interesting thing about idolatry is that it implies that there is a divine original of which our constructions are somehow distorted and insubstantial images. In other words, there's no idolatry if there's no God or there aren't any divine beings, right? And let me begin to approach this very big question about why do we commit idolatry? <laughs> One source of idolatry is unintentional. I guess I would sort of put it, this is sort of the way I've been thinking about it recently, that um, we are receptive to the divine light, if you will, but a kind of pure receptivity to the divine light is impossible. So the way I've been thinking about it is that each of us are kind of individually, peculiarly constructed prisms. You know, the light hits us and our souls, so to speak, have a kind of index of refraction and they've got different surfaces. And um, that is our addition to the divine light. It's a kind of, well, I guess I would say one of the things that we add is our imaginations. We see things from a human perspective, right? So to avoid idolatry in this unintentional sense, which I guess you could summarize what I'm saying is it's a function of human finitude and human limitation. We got to be aware of the problem to begin with, right? And we've got to keep in mind another thing, which I think is very important. And that is the difference between a revelation. So whether it's a biblical text or the incarnation of Jesus or what have you and the revealer, right? And the way I think about this, and I think, I mean, the, I don't know if I'm right, but let me put it this way. It seems to me that revelation is time-bound, it's finite, it's particular, right? So um, the revelation of God at Sinai to the Israelites uh, takes place at a particular time. It's bounded. Uh, it's particular. It's, it's in a certain kind of language and so forth. But the God that reveals is eternal, is infinite is universal, right? So that's, I think, another thing to keep in mind is that sort of what we're dealing with to begin with is already separate from the revealing God. Does that make sense? I mean... Yeah, so you said a couple of things. One is that in order for there to even be uh, an Eidolon, the, the, the shade, right? The, the, there, yes. there must be some original true God to whom the, like, the appropriate attitude is Latria. Right. And, and for Catholics, we are often defending our attitude toward God versus our attitude to his mother, Mary. And we say, like, Catholics do not have latria toward Mary. They have um, dulia, hyperdulia. It's a, diff it's a different kind of service. It's a different kind of submission. Um, so, so that really makes sense. But this is where we treat something that is false with the, with the attitude that would be appropriate for the thing that is true. But you also said that that presupposes that there is a God in the first place, which I don't know if that's true of the, you know, early pagans, for example, who saw a volcano and, and said, aha, that's, that's the God, right? They don't, they don't think that reflects some other sky God that they cannot perceive with their eyes. Yeah. So um, the, the issue becomes complicated in paganism. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess we could, we could, sort of deal with this question by 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 restricting idolatry to the context of biblical religion right where 
Hmm. Um, I mean, first of all, it becomes a real issue <laughs> in the Bible. Right. Um, you know, that shall have no other gods before me, right? Don't make graven images. Don't don't make images, right? Right. Um, so yeah, I I think that I think that's right. Um, the other thing I would just say about Mary and God, of course, is that you're relating to two different persons, right? Yeah. You're relating so um and I think you make an excellent point, which is that appropriate relationship with with one individual might not be exactly the appropriate relationship to another um but but one is instructed about what the nature of those relationships ought to be am i right about that i mean in other words it's not as if a catholic says oh i'm going to relate to mary and i'm going to make up from scratch what that would be at least that would be my my intuition by the way i'm jewish i'm not catholic so <laughs> this kind of explains you know my ignorance here which right. is right no she is she is a, a mediator she right. is you know she is the mother of god so right. you know she has she's we go to mary because she's all mercy you know when we're trying to avoid justice that we that we have coming to us we're like you know right. when it's the sort of thing you're like oh just, if you're you broke something go tell your mom don't go tell your dad and that's silly to put it like that in those little terms, but that's the idea that she will mediate and um, intervene and help us out. And Jesus listens to everybody. God listens to everybody. But Mary has a special has a special uh, avenue um, that and is also easier for us to relate to as, you know, um, somebody who's who's not divine, but just just holy. Yeah. And of course, at the bottom of this is is the notion that um, and this is in the Hebrew scriptures as well, God combines justice and yeah. mercy um and idolatry it seems to me is well let me just throw out it, it doesn't seem to be concerned with either of those things exactly in other words to you know the notion that we're relating to a god who is both just and merciful is already a kind of you know registering the nature of god in some way based on yeah. the information that god has given to us right um idolatry is the production of a notion of the divine by human beings without regard to what God actually well, then is, is going to perform whatever you want God to perform for you as sort of like a, you know, as a servant to you uh, as a cash machine, as a, you know, quid pro quo, yes. I'll, I'll, I'll sacrifice this and I'll get that. Um, so yeah. I think that's right. You know, behind idolatry um, is this desire to control yeah. the gods. This is a very fundamental feature of paganism, for sure, um, because it's long been observed that the sort of uh, theological economy of sacrifice is a, an attempt to control, right? So I, I talked about the unintentional idolatry, yeah. which is kind of a risk that we incur because of our limited human nature. But then there's a kind of intentional idolatry which which i think is very deep psychologically because it's an intentional rejection i think at the end of the day it's an intentional rejection of god's created world and of god god's yeah. self and the sources of that are very deep you know they're somewhere located in the basement of the human psyche somehow you know and it's hard to really understand that it's hard for me to understand that because, um, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but there's a kind of hubris, a kind of prideful notion that, well, we can do better yeah. than this natural created world, uh, which to me is patently false yeah. because I look at the world as 
a gift of goodness. Um, why would we think that through some kind of technology or technocracy or whatever we can construct an artificial world that can do better? Right, because uh, we're and, impatient and we don't want to put up with this inconvenience. And if I have cancer, I'd like it to be cured right now, please. And if I can, you know, sacrifice a, a goat or say 10 Hail Marys or something that'll get me out of this condition that I find really awful without seeing God's perspective, I see my own perspective and I'd, I'd like this fixed and I'd like it fixed yesterday. So who do, you know, what do I have to, what do I have to do? Yeah. Yeah. I think there is something to that. I mean, impatience, you know, we'll, we'll touch on this later too, I'm sure, but the pace of life has accelerated and um, patience is, is, is not a contemporary virtue yeah. <laughs> to say the least. I mean, um, you know, reflection and thinking, these things take time and we're not really interested in spending the time on these things as opposed to getting what we want when mm -hmm. we want it. So, um, well, let's look at the yeah. example that you started with your article, which I think is the biggest and most dramatic example of idolatry that I can think of, which is Aaron and the golden calf. Uh, and before I go there, I, you made a really great point a minute ago about that, that in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, God begins with, I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods beside me. Do not make graven images. That's the first or second rule, depending on how you count. And so it must be very important. And there's no rules against things that never happen, <laughs> right? There's no, there's all, all the weird things people have done, all the perversities that we have visited upon uh, ourselves that we read about in, you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. Nowhere does it say, don't cut off your little toe because nobody thought it would be fun to cut off his little toe. So we only have prohibitions against things people are inclined to. So you tell us about Aaron, what the heck happened and why? Yeah, I mean, it's so weird, right? So, I mean, everybody knows the story. Moses is up on the mountain communing with God. and He hasn't come back for a long time. And they're out in the middle of the Sinai out in the desert. And, and uh, you know, Moses has, 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 has taken... The Israelites out of Egypt, uh, and and speaking of impatience, of course they're they're very impatient, uh, very impatient, um, and they say, well, this guy's been gone a long time. We don't even know if he's coming back. So they command Aaron, who's his right hand man, to uh, make them a god and uh, to make them this 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 golden calf. Um, and it's a it's a very strange passage because at the end of that um, they. They make this calf and then they say, uh, they sort of ventriloquize the voice of God. Um, and they say, this is the Lord, your God, who took you out of mm -hmm. Egypt, yeah. right? As if the calf is that, which is actually an echo of what God said. I am the Lord, your God, who took you out of Egypt, right? And they're like, well, this is the Lord, your God. So what's really going on there? And I, I one of the things I realized um, is that um, a passage uh, from Aristophanes Clouds, Okay, and Aristophanes is a comic dramatist, contemporary of Socrates, shed some light on this. Um, so in the clouds, there's this kind of uh, indebted rustic Athenian who goes to Socrates' school. Socrates didn't actually have a, a place or a school, but this is Aristophanes' comic imagination uh, in order to learn the art of unjust speech because he's heard that Socrates can, can help you talk your way out of your debts. And so he promises to pay Socrates. And Socrates says, well, oh, he says, I swear by the gods I'll pay you. And Socrates says, well, hold on a second. Like, what gods are you swearing by? 
for first of all, and now we get a really cool pun, the gods are not current coin. They're not current coinage for us. And the, the word for coin is nomisma. Now this, first of all, is, is the root of our word numismatics, right? Which means coin collecting. But it's also etymologically related to the word namas, which means custom, law, convention. By the way, um, the when the Hebrew scripture has law, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scripture, has namas. Okay, so this is, so anyway, um, uh, and it's also related to a verb, nomidzain, which means to believe or acknowledge in accordance with custom. So there's a lot going on here. So what is what is the implication? Socrates implies when he says, look, what gods are you going to swear by? The gods are not, like, we don't exchange gods. They're, they're not coinage for us. They're not a concept that we work with. The implication is that the gods, and this includes, by the way, the Olympians, who um, whose pictures were on the coins, right? Like if you get an Ath Athenian tetradrachma, you have a picture of Athena on it from the time of Socrates, that the gods of any community are minted by that particular community. So, you know, in, in one you know, in one community, it might be a Roman god, another community it might be an Athena, in another community, it might be some other god, some Persian god or something like this. Um, and the idea is that every community makes its own gods, like they make their own coins. And these, but also like coins, the gods function as tokens of social exchange, right? And their value, as for example, something you swear by, is purely conventional. Um, their political value, their moral value, their psychological value, it's conferred collectively by the community. We all agree here in Athens that Athena is a goddess and you know we're going to use Athena in this way. We're going to swear by her or whatever. Um, and so the idea is that every member of the community, this is from the Socratic perspective, um, credits the gods only because everyone else does. Okay. This is like coined money, by the way, uh, because I mean, if we look at gold, for example, why is gold valuable? It's, it's interesting. Uh, there's a passage in Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, mm. which is about I remember that. post apocalypse. I read that book, yeah. And you may remember that, you know, he and his son go into a, like a fallout shelter and they find a coffee can full of Krugerrands, uh -huh. right? Because yes. this in the fallout shelter, they have foods and things like that, but they have this Krugerrands. And of course, he kind of runs his hands through them and they have absolutely no value whatsoever. Yeah. Because they're it, they they do not serve, they don't feed you, they're not going to give you shelter, they're not going to give you clothing, they have no value in this world. The only world in which they have value is a world in which everybody agrees that gold coins have value. Yeah. Right? So, so the idea is that from this atheistic Socratic perspective, which I should add, by the way, this is Aristophanes' view. If we were talking about yeah. Plato's Socrates, he is actually, I think, much more religious and pious and so forth. But from this atheistic Socratic perspective, there are no gods right? Every community makes them up. In this community, we worship Jesus. In this community, we worship Allah. In this community. But the question of what is the real God is meaningless. Well, um, I think that we know that as children, because if you wanted to promise something and you had to swear and you wanted to swear on the, your mother's grave or you wanted to swear on the Holy Bible, there's different levels of swearing that a child will accept. Okay, this time Jacob's telling the truth because he did say this about his mother. So therefore, like that's a powerful enough oath um, I, I I remember that fallout shelter from that wonderful book, The Road, and I just remember how when he finally found a bottle of whiskey or something which had been gone for so long, he tried to drink it. And it was poison because he had completely lost his you know tolerance for it, and it was it was something like it's like he didn't 
he didn't want it. And there's an, a, a lovely book that became a movie called The Postman by David Brin. Uh, and in the in the movie version, Kevin Costner is in a post-apocalyptic nightmare and he stumbles across some gas station somewhere with a cigarette machine and nobody has looted it. And so he finds all these cigarettes and he's like, I'm rich, I'm rich, I'm rich, you know, because right, <laughs> right. that has value that, that he can trade cigarettes in the, you know, in the distant future, but he could never trade gold. Nobody wants gold anymore. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, so what's interesting about this is that in that, from that Socratic perspective, there can't be any idolatry, right? Because, you, you know, it doesn't make sense to say this is an insubstantial and distorted image yeah. of, of what? There is no true God. There is no, you know, there's no original. And so this problem of idolatry is connected, actually. I've, I've been thinking a lot about Plato, right? Like in Plato's Sophist, there's this question of, like, what's a Sophist? A Sophist is a person who gives you insubstantial images and claims that they're the real thing, you know. But this particular atheistic perspective, sort of relativistic, cultural relativism, if you will, rules out this question of idolatry. But I do think, now to go back after this long uh, uh, explanation to the golden calf, that it illuminates the golden calf. Because what do the Israelites do? They meant their own God. Or as you yes. would put it, I like your phrase, right? They forge their own God with both meanings, right? Of uh, because and so actually, what does Aaron do? He takes all the jewelry and remember the Israelites had borrowed jewelry from the Egyptians and then made off with it. And he takes all these particular gold earrings and stuff like this and rings and melts them all down into this this molten gold, and then he molds a calf out of it somehow. And you made the um, point that it's important that it loses its form. It loses its shape once you melt it. Yeah. Exactly. It's an undifferentiated mass. It's like yeah. the Israelite mob. By the way, in this respect, it reminds me of um, another thing that we'll talk about, which is the Tower of Babel, where it's always seemed to me that these, these baked bricks, mm -hmm. and remember the bricks are made of the soil, and the soil in Hebrew is Adama, which is where we get our word Adam, right? So um, a a human being is, uh, or the original human being is ha-adam. Yeah. Okay, that's the word for human being. So, so, but these bricks are like you bake the heck out of them, and they're they're dry and they're lifeless and they're identical and they're all stacked up, right? So, um, but this is this is a feature of idolatry. It seems to me is it's it's lifeless and it's abstract, right? I mean, coins are not alive, right? Um, and again, the gold is gold is valued only because it's conventionally valued. And because it's valued, so in other words, it has value only because it is valued, not because of anything that's intrinsic to it. And because it's valued in our society, um, it's convertible into objects of desire, right? So this golden calf is like a symbol of the collective desire yeah. of human beings. And, and you can turn it into, I mean, you could take this calf, you could, you could exchange it for a bunch of great stuff, you know. But here are these Israelites, and another feature of it is, just if we look at that golden calf episode, the Israelites completely forget their debt to God. They completely forget their debt to Moses. They completely forget the past. They have historical forgetfulness. They have metaphysical or spiritual forgetfulness, right? To say, this is the God who took you out of Egypt. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any sense yeah. at all. Um, so idolatry is rooted in this kind of fundamental forgetfulness um, so in, and is it you know um male and female he created them in genesis mm -hmm. the word for male there is the one who remembers isn't it Zacher or something like that i'm gonna mess it up there's something about 
what is a male? Yeah, so male, it's interesting because, um, actually, that's a good question. I was going to mention later, so we have Ha'adam, yeah, which is somehow earth, right? male. Or red, because right. the earth is red, isn't it, or something like that. Yeah, right. So he created them male and female. And then later, of course, you know, Eve is separated from the rib. Yeah. And there's a shift in the language there from Ha'adam, which is the original somehow male and female human being, to the male human being and the female human being. So now we have this, this differentiation. But the same thing actually happens, interestingly. Um, the tendency to idolatry is already present, it seems to me, in the first quoted speech of a human being in the Bible, which is when, let's call him Adam, the male human being, breaks into a kind of poetry when the female is created. Yes. Okay, so he wakes up from his sleep, right? And he's like, ah, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then he says, okay, he says, she shall be called female because she came from male. But, and and like the Hebrew has this sort of same pun, okay? Um, and, but what's crazy is that that's a mistake because Eve, that the female was was taken apart from the original male and female human being, from the original human being. And to say that she came from the male is to is to put himself, is to sort of say, I'm the source of the female. Are you saying she but, he was not male until she was a female? That, that exactly. That and the language shows the language ah. shows that. Right. So um so what's what's curious about this is that as and this kind of relates to the confusion introduced by sex, incidentally, which is a big topic. Um, he gets excited by her in her presence and he makes a sort of intellectual mistake, which is that the male didn't exist until the female was taken away from the original Ha'adam, yeah. the original human being. So she came from Ha'adam, which was created by yeah. God. But to say like, she came from me is almost to say like, I'm the source. I, the male, am the source right. of the female. Do you see what right. I'm saying? So there's a I've kind of- that. That's amazing. So he was not male yeah. until she was female, right? The first person was exactly. neither male nor female until that exactly. separation occurred. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And the, the shift in the language shows this. So, and you know, you think about it then, and actually this, this kind of relates to the larger question of idolatry because um, there is an intellectual mistake here it's it the way i look at it is it's it's a confusion that results from a kind of upsurge of passion somehow you know like here's this woman i'm so excited i'm going to call her woman because she came from me it's a very strange moment i mean i don't know if his imagination is firing or what exactly is going on there but i think there's some relationship between that and the and what the bible presents as the seduction of eve you know <laughs> by the serpent um it's, it's rather interesting because, so I actually just read Paradise Lost for the first time. Oh, wow. And Milton suggests that that Satan who has inhabited the serpent uh, is uh, has a kind of hatred toward Eve because he sees her as this woman and he sees this kind of pleasure, um, this female enjoyment that he could have with her that, that, that he's excluded from, right? So he actually hints at that, which picks up on a rabbinic interpretation, which is bizarre, 
but it's I think it's on to something that the serpent actually wanted to have a sexual relationship with Eve, <laughs> right? <laughs> and thought that, oh, that the tree would really kill you because he believes that God is right. This is the rabbinic interpretation. So Eve's going to take the, the 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 fruit and, but she's smart, the serpent thinks, and give it to Adam and he'll drop dead and then he'll have, the serpent will have her. Wow. Um, now <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, crazy and bizarre, but what, but what all this stuff is pointing to is what happens to our thinking to our reason, to our intelligence, when desire enters in, you know, and what what's like, how can that sort of confuse us? And I think there's something to that in terms of idolatry, right? Yeah. Because obviously the, the fruit look good, it's desirable source of wisdom, it could be a god, etc. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, and we, we you touched on the Tower of Babel, but like, look what we can do. Let us hear, uh, I forget if it's Nimrod or some other early king like look what we can do we can build this and we can make make a name for ourselves and there's nothing wrong with building towers as long as you're doing it for the glory of god i'm sure but if you start making yes. it for your own glory then you have started to worship yourself in god's um in god's place and now uh you have, there's a couple other points you make which is the acceleration of human progress uh and you quote henry adams and uh, once you uh, share his thesis with us and then take us a hundred years into the future where things are really getting crazy. So actually, you know, before, before we go to that, maybe I can just say a little bit more because I definitely want to talk about Henry, but let, let me maybe just say a little bit more about this question of um, why Eve, what's the human source of idolatry? What, what's going on there? And I mean, you'll forgive me for, for, for sort of backtracking on this, but I, I was very interested in Milton's, characterization of satan at one point satan says better to rule in yes. hell than serve in yes. heaven and that's because in his view service is to god is slavery yes. right so there's a kind of inability to distinguish proper service yes. latreia from slavery and i think this obviously stems from pride but i also occurred to me incidentally that the ancient greeks had a kind of interesting view of liberty or freedom um their notion was either you're dominated or you are dominating someone yeah. else. So that if freedom means the domination um, of other of of others. But but then there's also, it seems to me, a kind of inherited um spirit of destruction, you know, that I think it's true for the Bible as well as for the Greeks that we have chaos kind of built into us in some way. Um, you know, in the Greeks, even the gods come from chaos, like in Hesiod yeah. and stuff. But in the Bible, it's clear that you got to put energy into the system to, to, to maintain structure. So, for example, why are Adam and Eve gardening? Well, because <laughs> the trees and stuff are wild and they have they grow, yeah. and they're, they're just kind of spreading out. So you got to kind of prune them back, right? I don't remember where I got it, but people say like a garden is the is the balance, right? It's not a parking lot, which is too much order, and it's not the jungle, which is too much chaos. It's, exactly. It's it's the correct balance um yeah, yeah right and you're and you're and you're so what you're doing is you're taking this kind of primordial life energy which which i also associate by the way you know in the beginning right in the bible you've got this watery chaos yeah, <laughs> and of course right the the but but the thing about the sea is that the sea and this is true also for the greeks right the sea is like it could be stormy it can yeah. kill you and so forth but it's also a source of life like they yeah. knew this right i mean it's this it's this and so there's a kind of 
chaotic energy that's got to be structured and you got to keep putting the energy into it. This, by the way, becomes extremely important once Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, because now you've got a lot of work to do. I mean, it's not just like, here's a lovely pear tree. It's growing a little bit too big. Let's cut it back. It's no, make this ground fertile, grow the thing, take the rocks out and so forth. Um, and then the other thing that I think needs to be mentioned before we turn to Adams, and then we can, we can turn to Adams. Um, if we look at the Greek myths, there's the story of Pandora, um, which is kind of a punishment for Prometheus stealing fire for man. And then Zeus is like, okay, we'll pay them back. So he gets Hephaestus, the craftsman got to fashion woman. There were no women so in the world before could you, that. Um, Prometheus is a Titan. Does that make him a mortal, yes. but of great strength sort of a thing? No, he is, he is an immortal, but he's somehow a champion of human beings. And in Hesiod's story, he's really hard to distinguish from human beings. He's a very um, philanthropic god, if you like. Um, but, but what's interesting about Pandora is that um, man is like taken in by her. Like she's incredibly beautiful. So the gods make this woman. But what they do is they put um, Hephaestus, who's the craftsman god, puts a golden crown on uh -huh. her. That's a kind of image of the whole world. It's got animals on it that look like they're alive and stuff like this. And I interpret that as that she's not just an object of ordinary lust, but it's kind of like the, the, the lust. By the way, Robert Alter in his translation of the Hebrew scriptures translates um, when Eve saw, looks at the fruit of the tree, it's, he says it's a lust to the eyes. Hmm. It's a lust to the eyes, which I like. That is, there's this kind of illicit desire, right, that's, that's, that attracts her to it. And Pandora is an object of ordinary sexual lust, but also like he, he see, describes this, her dress and her beautiful clothing, which is made by Athena and then Hephaestus. And there's a kind of lust for this technical power of almost reproducing the world um, through kind of advanced technical yeah. skill. So I think that that's, you know, and it's an interesting clue because if you think about what, because we're going to come to artificial intelligence, right? Which is kind of the ultimate, yeah at least at this stage of technological power. If you look at the arts, right, the, the technai in Greek, um, they are, they, they imitate stuff that's in nature. So why do we say cars, is, cars have horsepower? Because they're <laughs> mechanical horses. What is a plane? It is a mechanical bird. What is a submarine? It is a mechanical yeah. fish. What is a boat? It is a mechanical duck and so forth. But this again raises my question, which is, What's better, right? Now you can say, well, a boat's better because it's faster, has more utility. You can't ride a duck or something like that. But from the point of view of an imitation of nature, it's got a very serious problem. Yeah. It's not alive. It's not self-moving. It doesn't, it's, it's not an organic being. Yeah. It is a simulacrum, which we have produced for our own yeah. convenience, but never should it substitute for. It, it, it's sort of like saying, why do we have the sun? Let's just have street yeah. lamps. Well, the question I is. think this goes back to Milton's quotation about better to rule in hell than serve in heaven, because you're doing it on your own terms. You create it at your will. You don't have to ask permission and you didn't you didn't have to go to somebody else's design. You made your own design. So, OK, fine. It's not exactly the same, but at least it's yours and it's at your beck and beck and call. But yeah, but I don't. But, but see, this is what I don't get. I mean, I don't get his whole. I mean, first of all. In Milton, so this is where like the traditions around Satan get confusing to me because 
it's yeah. it's so it's unclear in the in the bible it's like the the accuser in job is different than the serpent in eden uh and when you get to christian scripture he's very different by the time you get to the book of revelation or the temptation of of jesus right but what we have for milton is this satan that i think has entered popular culture that i that i understand and that's interesting too because if he's one third of the angels the most beautiful and promising of the angels but he does it like he has full knowledge of what he's giving up uh what an interesting choice we're we're here we're sitting here in the foggy glass confused and trying to make our best guess but he knew what he was doing and that's that's shocking yeah and it's but you know it's really interesting with regard to this question of of technical power so um, a third of the angels rebel along with Satan. What's interesting is the 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 ultimately the world. I mean, God's in the process. He's going to create man and the world as a kind of substance, sort of like given that the angels have rebelled. Let's start over. We'll make these human beings. We'll make a world for them. But the but the universe is divided into three regions, right? And in hell, what really struck me is, and Milton's fantastic. He takes all the mess and he's like. What, who's Hephaestus? Who's this Hephaestus that shows up and he's, he's a fallen angel and he lands in hell. And what do they do in hell? They have technical expertise. He's like, there's this passage where Milton says something like, they mined in hell and they pulled out gold and silver and they made these thrones of Satan. And by the way, you think your stuff, you think, you know, the amazing wonders of the world that human beings have built or something, you should see what's in, what's in hell, right? So here's this dark place where there's no light. There's like, heat and you know but but it's and and they're technical masters right that's where Hephaestus is which is such a great image because like okay you could like you could have that world but it's not a living world it's not a blooming world it's not a light world it's not a it's not a world of sunshine that's what you're trading it for that like that's and you know this is the lunacy I mean I have a book here that like it's actually on my desk here called the word the flesh and the devil by a a crazy Stalinist named J.D. Bernal. <laughs> and this guy was written like in the 20s. And basically his perspective is, um, we must immediately construct an entirely artificial world. Mm. We've got to get off this planet. We would be so much better if we were living in an artificially lighted space capsule and just like blasting up, which is yeah. to me like the height of insanity. Yeah. Uh, but incidentally, this is what C.S. Lewis in his uh, space trilogy, which I also just oh, read. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and he talks about that, like that the bad guys are dudes like J.D. Bernal, <laughs> who want, who are like, you know, organic stuff. It's disgusting. Yeah. There's like waste products and, you know, there's slime, snails are slimy. And so, let's just have mechanical yeah. things, you know. Why do we need light? We don't need, let's have a world of street. No, that's right. And that's right. And that's every parent who's like, put that, put down your video games and go outside. It's a beautiful day. And the kids are like, yes. Eh. I, I don't want to. And there was a thing called, it's called Second Skin or Second Life or something like that, where you could just enact a normal person going through a, a, an imaginary video game. And you could spend your real money that you got at work to buy stuff for your imaginary apartment online and just live a second life. Yes. And this 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 directly relates to artificial yes. intelligence, which, which is sort of producing, like we're sealing ourselves into a humanly constructed yeah. world and no sort of losing contact with with the created natural world which is to me like th- this is why I, I i simply can't understand it i i don't i i mean it, it i don't know i have this kind of revulsion to it but i guess i'm a sort of miltonian or something like that you know what's interesting about Babel, by the way which is the another episode um is it's an interesting story and i'm sure this has occurred to you the bible says first they made the bricks mm. 
And then they decided what to do. Oh, I missed that. I totally missed that. (laughs) Yeah. Let us make bricks. They get to make the bricks. Now let's make a building, right? So in other words, you know what it reminds me of? I read a book about the CIA. It's about the CIA and LSD. So as you probably know, the CIA discovered, like they didn't discover LSD, but they they found out, here's the stuff called LSD. So what did they do? They said, what are we going to do with this stuff, right? And they said, well, maybe it's a truth serum. So let's give it to our agents and see if they tell the truth. No. Maybe it's a non-truth serum because you give it to people, they just spout nonsense. And turns out that's not the case either. But what they started doing is experiment. They actually literally sprayed it into bars in San Francisco and stuff and observed the patrons. <laughs> they had prostitutes giving their uh, the Johns LSD and stuff like this. And this is the technological mentality, yeah. right? Here's this powerful stuff. What can we do with it? And I think that's part of it too, is just this love, love of power. I mean, I guess it goes back to what you're saying about control. You control the world, but you know, I think this is this is something important. And but you know, the people of Babel, they've been traumatized. I mean, I, a lot of that is defensive. I think I, I think they're profoundly misguided. But and obviously, what's at stake is is it going to be God's word or human? Yeah, human that, word, that's right? so. That to me, like their mistake is that they just wanted to glorify themselves but to build a tower in a in a uncertain time makes a lot of sense build a city makes a lot of sense we've been doing that forever so you know and then your article ends with uh, the reckoning where moses comes down from sinai he shatters the 10 commandments and he puts to the sword all those idolaters somehow his brother aaron gets off scot free in this episode I never yeah, never understood that, that one right uh, right yeah i mean that's so interesting too because it's actually another thing in Milton is that, you know, um, God is merciful and just, but there, but the justice, like there has to, you know, there's got to be payment for this. In the case of Milton, for this original yeah. sin, there has to be payment. Someone's got to pay, and of course, it's Jesus. Um, and that that actually is interesting because it, I think, you know, it it reminds me of an insight that the Greeks had, which is if you read the Iliad and stuff like that there's this kind of cosmic reckoning that's sort of beyond Zeus in a yeah. way, you know what I mean? Like, you know, the, the scales have to balance. Right. And um, so, yeah, there has to be like, there's gotta be payment. Like you, you know, you guys screwed up royally and someone's got to yeah. pay and it's 3000 Israelites. You know? <laughs> right. So <laughs> let's go to AI. So you, you, you talk about yeah. the historian, Henry Adams, who's the grandson yes. and great grandson yes. of two presidents. And he has a thesis. And what, what is, what is his thesis? So his thesis, so it's interesting. So, so Adams has a, this sort of Adams law, I guess you, people call it. He realized that, um, that the, the acceleration of technology uh, really took off around 1800. And um, he, he sort of calculated the amount of force available to human beings starting with around 1800. And he used very simple methods to do this, like coal production. The more coal you have, the more power you can get from coal. Okay. And his thesis was that since 1800, the amount of force that's available to us um, that we can put into service doubles every decade. So it's this kind of constant acceleration. But as you can see, if you double something, at some point, the 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 curve mm-hmm. of acceleration, right, is is gonna it's gonna get very steep. Yeah. I mean, it starts out kind of slow and then it gets really steep. Um, I think Adams would be shocked at computing because I I mean, I I don't know what the laws are in, you know, sort of in terms of like doubling computer power, but I think they're not every decade. I think they're faster than that, right? But but maybe not. But in any case, um, Artificial intelligence looks to me like it might be kind of a sort of quantum p- 
point, right, where things really sort of take off quickly. But for Adams personally, you know, he's born in 1838. He lives through a period where, you know, you get steam engines, you get railroads, you get automobiles, you get wireless telegraphs, you get telephones. You even get airplanes by the time you get to like 1905 when he's writing this book. Um, and he just sort of thought, this is crazy. Yeah. Like the acceleration is too fast because of the social changes that technology bring in. Um, and he even has a line somewhere like, maybe, you know, the telephone could like radically destroy society, you know. But what would he think of uh, advanced yeah. AI? Um, why? Because, um, well, technology, I mean, obviously, you know, and actually Freud writes about this in Civilization as Discontents, you know. I mean, we look at it, we're like, it's great, I can call my son. But um, railroads and fast transportation and airplanes and stuff, it just sort of begins to destroy these kinds of organic bonds people move away from home and then of course you have kind of this capitalist uh creative destruction according to joseph schumpeter which empties towns right moves to production overseas and so forth so when you have sort of an excess of technology uh we exceed the pace at which human beings can kind of digest and get used to new orders i guess you might say right and it's profoundly destabilizing um, and I think AI is is promising to be profoundly destabilizing in in sort of similar ways. You you were you're responding to somebody who writes in very optimistic terms. Uh, I think from the UAE, from the United uh, Arab right. Emirates, talking about the the, the march of progress. Uh, and this this author says that the World Economic Forum imagines that you know a, a utopia is coming in the 21st century promised land. But but uh, and the quotation is like the people will spend their leisure time on will spend their time on leisure, creative, and spiritual pursuits. Yes. And your response is, yeah, well, you know, a safer bet would be drugs and sex robots, which I think is a, your, 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 your reading of, of human uh, inclinations is, uh, I think is, is more, <laughs> it's more accurate. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, uh, so this started with, uh, with COVID, remember with yeah. COVID and everyone's isolated and, and people said like, well, that's good news. You know, you got time, right? You're at home. Yeah. And you could paint and you could, you know, learn how to play an instrument and you can do these things. Very ancient problem. Aristotle pointed it out. Um, and he wasn't the only ancient Greek to do this. He pointed out in regard to the Spartans and his critique of the Spartans, but not just the Spartans, but the Greeks as a whole, the Athenians too, was that they didn't know how to be at leisure. Okay. But let's just take the Spartans for a second. The whole community is designed to have war. And of course, war is for the sake of peace. And then aerosol, this is according to aerosol, like you don't just fight war, you fight war for the sake of peace. What's peace for? Well, peace is for the sake, not of business, right? But leisure. And, but the problem is that we, he says they're not educated for leisure. And then in his politics, he also says the Athenians aren't either because all they do is get drunk and they tell myths. Whereas of course, leisure, skole in Greek, which is the root of our word school and scholar, leisure's for philosophy, right? Leisure's for, now we have Joseph Pieper, right? leisure the basis of culture and, and what's missing and i think it connects with ai peeper writes uh leisure the basis of culture and uh the philosophical act these two talks i think in 1947 shortly after world war ii and the whole idea was reconstruction rebuilding europe and work 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 right and productivity and he was worried about the kind of totalization of the world of work and the absence of leisure so, um, you know, schooling was for the sake of utility and utilities for the sake of rebuilding and gross economic product and so forth. 
And he sees leisure as, you know, being still and, and standing in the presence of the Lord and, you know, reflecting on the, on the God's creation and so forth. And he has very good arguments of like, this is absolutely essential for human culture. Um, so my concern about AI, among other things, is uh, it's going to put people out mm -hmm. of work. Work is what structures our lives. By the way, it's not as if people are like super excited about their work. Many people don't really like their work, but it gives a fundamental structure to life. It also, uh, very important, um, we get a paycheck, right? Um, this is one argument against, by the way, um, the kind of, let's say, um, all caring motherly government that sort of just doles out income to people. Yeah. Um, and so it's unearned um, because there's a sense of um, accomplishment and a kind of dignity yeah. if you're a provider uh, through work. So, so it throws all these people out of work and it takes away the structure of their lives. And then it's like, well, okay, you know, why don't you, um, why don't you learn a new language? Why don't you learn how to paint? Oh, that's fine if you're Leonardo da Vinci or something. Um, but most of us aren't. Yeah. And we have not been educated to, to, to use our leisure well. And actually, John Maynard Keynes has an article about this. It's called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And he says, at some point, machines are going to obviate the need for work. And then we're going to face the most difficult problem in human history, which is what we do with well, our Well, and so there's a big problem. I love learning new languages, but if I'm not enrolled in a class that I paid for and I'm waiting for that professor to give me a, a mark at the end, I'm just going to, oh, I'm not going to feel like it today, or maybe I'll do it later. Maybe I won't. And before I know it, I've moved on to some other, uh, you know, flight of fancy and I'm not going to follow through on it. Um, so the fact that I have to get up every day and shower and put on clean clothes and look like a person and get to work at a certain time and be there for a certain time, amount of time, that really gives me discipline and discipline of maybe for a few people, it can be internal, but for most of us, discipline is uh, external. And actually, as I'm saying this, I realize I'm making, the, this is the same point I would make about the sex robots, because there's no relationship with a sex robot. There's nobody you're compromising with, listening to or learning from. You're just performing sort of a sex act by yourself on top of a rubber doll and call it and call yeah, it that. Right. That's not sex. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And this, this comes down to a very fundamental point because um, I mean, as what I understand AI to be doing is, and this is, this is sort of the shoe dropping, yeah. right? This is the connection with idolatry is that we are in fact relating to ourselves. We have built these machines um, if we look at something like ChatGPT, the way it works is, you know, it like the joke that you read <laughs> at the beginning, uh, it, it it has all this digital data, right? And it kind of goes through the internet and it it, it compresses the stuff and it, you know, does its magic on it and it kind of regurgitates yeah. it in some way. Um, so it's not actually, I mean, it's kind of rearranging things and sort of um, putting things together that maybe hadn't been put together in exactly the same way before, but um, it's not relating. It's actually, everything is mediated. It's actually relating to digital encoded stuff, which is a human production. In one of the articles I wrote, I said that AI doesn't directly relate to the, to reality, yes. to the real world. That was world, so important. Right? That's yeah. And, and, and if you have a relationship, a friendship or a wife or a spouse or a child, uh, or just the simple act of sex, right? You know, actual sex. You are relating to another human being, um, and you are you are on some level opening yourself to that other human being. AI is not open to anything except itself. It's completely yeah. enclosed. 
right? No, that's um, that's, so, that's so that's so true. And everything it says is predictive, and it stops making sense. Uh, if you look at it from a take a couple steps back, it stops making sense right away, which is why AI can be fooled by uh, images of a school bus versus a crosswalk because it's never seen a school bus in its whole life. It just recognizes that this kind of yellow thing equals school bus and this kind of white stripey thing equals crosswalk, or this is a stoplight, but it doesn't understand what the heck a stoplight is any more than it can understand a sonnet yeah. or a joke or doesn't know what, you know, it doesn't know what a rabbi is, but it does know that in 20,000 or 20 million jokes about yes. rabbis and priests, they kind of came out like this. So I'll do the same thing. Yeah, that's right. And you know, and like speaking of the sort of self-enclosed nature of the thing, I was worried. So I'm I'm working for UATX, commonly known as the University of Austin. And one of the issues we've been confronting is, oh gosh, now we've got something called ChatGPT and other kind of you know AI stuff. And kids are going to use it to write their papers and stuff. I'm not as worried about that anymore as I was recently, Chris, because I learned that um that things like ChatGPT are actually polluting the sources of their information. Ah. Okay, so so but because what's happening is they they look at what's on the internet and an increasing quantity of stuff is generated by AI. Yeah. So it's almost like eating your own waste, right? In other <laughs> words, and and this is particularly true because there was an article in the New Yorker that talks about how ChatGPT works, okay? And what it does is it goes over all this stuff and it basically produces like these incredible sort of zip files which means that it takes information and it crushes it down and that and that means it loses specificity okay so it's the analogy in the article was making a xerox of a xerox of a xerox yeah. right these things sort of become vaguer and so so what happens is it does this stuff it produces these kind of low quality things but the more that ai is generating stuff that's on the internet the more it's talking to itself literally like so actually so there are authors now who are suing um companies that have this generative AI uh, programs, I think something like 80,000 of them got together or some huge number and said, you guys are illegally taking our books from like pirated websites and stuff and training AI on it. Because you see, you can't train AI on, I don't know, just some crappy, you know, daily paper or something like that. If you want it to speak intelligently, you got to train yourself like Milton, right? Or whatever, right? Like good authors today. But so what's happening is that if you want high quality chat GPT, it has to be trained on the good stuff. But the percentage of good stuff is decreasing <laughs> because of the garbage that chat GPT is putting up. Yeah. So long story short, it seems to me that the quality of papers, you know, and, and you can actually test this, right? Um, you know, if you ask a chat GPT, write me an essay on whatever, it's not going to be very yeah. good and it's going to get worse. Yeah. Well, and I've had the experience where you tell a student, please write an essay on this. And they that kid using uh, AI and it makes no sense. It's just patterns that, you know, if if you if I said okay, young man, I'd like an uh, essay about Romeo and Juliet, and then it starts saying like okay, well Romeo and Juliet uh, starts off in in Verona, but then uh, Romeo opens a taxi company and Juliet uh, is leaving for <laughs> Mars, and it made no sense. It was just like this many millions of sentences. Some of the times this happened, right? Like. Juliet yes, got lost right. on the way to the airport because so many stories and like that. And um, I can imagine that that water's getting so polluted, like you say. Of, yes, yes. Um, so, and like, you know, the lazy kid is not going to read the essay that they, <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, this is, I'm turning in something ridiculous. Yeah. What about socially, right? Because the lazy kid who doesn't want to say like, okay, I'm going to, you know, 
be courageous and ask a, a, a pretty girl to go to a restaurant and I'm going to find the restaurant and find out what day the live music is. And I'm going to, you know, brush my teeth and put on, you know, practice my jokes and all that. Like, or I could just spend that money and, and buy a, a rubber doll or look at pornography or do something right. immediately gratifying without any meaning that will then, you know, bring this kid into this depressive, um, low point where it is very hard now to claw back up to the point where where they're even willing to like approach somebody and go out for coffee or something like that uh yeah that that's the kind of idolatry that that i think you know because because so many things are stimulating to the senses but have no really those shades those those edelon those those shades like 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 vampires yeah. and you know they they have no worth but they feel good in the moment Oh, gosh, there's so much to yeah. say here. I mean, first of all, we're outsourcing um, our own capacities to AI, even in small ways. Uh, I used to be able to use maps and navigate very mm -hmm. well. And, you know, we don't have to do that. We have GPS. Okay. So it can sort of take over tasks from you. And, and you know, obviously, this is a big issue in terms of, say, command of language and things like that, because you use the thing to write your paper. You don't really even need to know anything. But then the other problem is it isolates us. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the issue here is a kind of fear of contact with reality. And this is an increasing problem in our society. I get it. You know, why do kids want safe spaces at college and stuff? It's the world is a pretty harsh place and so forth. But the way to do it is not to isolate yourself. But then look at the ways you can isolate yourself. Like, you know, Plato's cave image. Okay. Actually, the weird thing is like in the cave image, the whole society is in the same cave. We're all in different mm. caves. Heck, you know. I mean, the way that this electronically mediated stuff works is it says, oh, Howland ordered X. We're going to feed him yeah. that. Howland reads this. He would like that. So it sort of separates us into these little groups. And I mean, if you sort of go back. So I, I remember I gave a talk years ago. Other professors were present and I was talking about Odysseus. OK, so here's Odysseus. And Odysseus to me is a figure who wrestles with reality. OK, like like he, he's wounded and is when he's young because he's hunting a wild boar and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, he's going to take his licks. He's going to prove himself and sort of wrestling with reality. And one of the professors said, kind of postmodern guy, he said, well, what is reality? Like, what do you mean by reality? What is reality? I think the correct answer to that is, I'm not entirely sure, but I know it's something. <laughs> and I know that we are constructed to relate to it. Yeah. You know? And I also know that reality has a way of asserting itself. You know, um, you can, I mean, um, it seems to me that a proper attitude to reality is displayed by Adam or Adam, actually, when God says, um, I'm going to bring the animals in front of you. And he, and he names them, right? This is, this is the right use of logos, if you will, to use a Greek term here. Because what is happening is there's a discrimination of the stuff in the world and you're labeling it, you're sorting it, you're naming it, you're responding to it, right? Today, there's a kind of very diminished understanding of reality such that some people think, if I simply assert that reality is, and I use whatever word, yeah. then it is. I mean, we, we don't have sexes. We've got genders yeah. and we can make them up ad nauseum. And th this is what it is, right? Um, yeah, that's, that's that idea that if I speak it, it must be true. Is yes. that is, is taking on the role of a God for a miniature God just for yourself. And everybody else had better agree with your version of reality. Yeah. And it's, or it's, there's, or it's an assault. <laughs> it's it's very strange. So I read, actually, a student turned me on to a book, which 
Um, your listeners might find interesting, although I have to warn that it's it's highly pornographic. Okay, but it was called um, the um, it, it had the words prime intellect. It was something like the um, is it uh, is it the metamorphosis that, of prime intellect? By, uh, yes, that's exactly it. The metamorphosis. Roger of prime Williams. Intellect. Yes, right. So, so what was interesting about this book is that a, a computer achieves, you know, like, you know, the 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 singularity, the singularity, and it has it's all powerful and it's following the sort of laws of robotics, which is don't do harm to any human. You know, this is Asimov, right? Like, the computer must not harm human beings. Okay, so it decides that what it's going to do is not allow people to die because death is harm, and the computer gives human beings this complete power. So this notion. Like, you know, you talk about sex dolls and drugs and things like that and using AI to do whatever you want. Um, that's child's play because this computer says, I will create whatever reality you want. So I can say to the computer, computer, I want to live on my own planet and I want, you know, um, this kind of geography and I want the finest uh, scotch ever conceived and I want, you know, beautiful maidens and whatever you want. Okay. And for the first like 600 years, people are psyched, you know, and then there is a meaning crisis because it's all unearned and it's all solipsistic and people begin to try to find something like reality. What they're missing is reality. But the only real thing in this world is not death because it won't let you die. It's pain. <laughs> so, so people begin to, to seek pain. It's, it, it's a very strange thing, but so there's a, this, uh, one of the main characters is a woman who, was on the point of death she was in her 90s and she had slaved her whole life to have her grandchildren go to school and so forth and what the computer then takes over and it restores everybody to their prime age and she's like 18 years old and so forth and at some point she realized like what did i slave for what did i do like everything's handed to me it's completely unearned and it has no meaning for that yeah. reason and there's this kind of exhaustion of personal pleasure physical all these other things yeah. you know at some point you reach it's just completely nihilistic. And so then they, you know, I won't spoil the plot, but there's an attempt to reverse. Yeah. This. What a great, what a, what a great idea though. And, and I think that happens all the time. Anytime humans try to create some kind of utopia, it, it goes really, really, really badly. And yes. I think, you know, if you take a story like the matrix where we just live in this little, you know, simulation, or there was a TV show with Ted Danson called the good place. And it, it it begins thinking you're you're in heaven, but really over time you realize actually we're in hell, <laughs> because that that's yes. after a while when when the meaning does not derive from God, it derives from people. It's it's hell, and uh, you can't stay there very long before you realize it, because that's not the way we're made. Yeah, that's right. And you know, I mean, there's a long discussion here, but it seems to me that the understanding changed in modernity, changed in in early modernity. Um, because before that, uh, the religious traditions and certainly the Greeks, you know, the world was good. And, and the point was to open ourselves to the world. Um, and then we get, you know, we lose, I mean, C.S. Lewis is very good on this. He has a book called The uh, Discarded Image, which is about the transition from the medieval worldview to the modern worldview. And so Lewis points out, like, it used to be there were places, these are concrete places, right, where trees and grass now we have space which is a kind of neutral right and so everything becomes abstract everything and you know matter in the world is simply stuff like descartes says that you can rearrange yeah. you know to whatever your desires are and that's a really fundamental change what's cool about the matrix is that you know that ship the nebuchadnezzar that yes. they're on it's i'm sure it stinks 
if you notice, you know, it's kind of in grays. They're eating soupy, yeah, nasty-looking right. food. It has one thing going for it, one thing only. It's yeah. real. It's real. So we relate to reality, and reality is outside yeah. of us, especially if it's good. There's a natural inclination to relate to it. Uh, today, it's more like, well, what do you want? Yeah. You know, reach into your soul or your body or whatever and pull out whatever it is you want, and it will fabricate yeah. it for you. You know what? I, I sort of feel like we could preach at kids, but they'll figure this out much faster on their own than listening to older, you know, what yeah. and I bet. Are you finding that at the University of Austin that like they're fed up and a correction yeah. is coming, you know? Well, I'll tell you what I noticed. I'm glad you asked that question. We had a, um, a sort of intent, a week of intensive high school seminars and we had 95, I think, high school students come to Austin um to study you know shakespeare and plato and you know um robotics and what you know whatever while they could be some I, it was like data you know probability statistics things like this and they were so thrilled and what was interesting is we drew from a lot of christian academies classical academies some public school kids whose minds were completely blown because they'd never had anything like this and you know what they loved the community mm. because those little classical academies and stuff, they're, they're not really big. But when you come together with, at, with really high level students from all over the country, and they, these kids are all a little unusual, you know, they're not. And they look around like, oh, my gosh, there are other people yeah. like me. They like there's a guy reading Nietzsche. What's that book about? Well, I read this book. Here's Dostoevsky. You know, and they're just and I mean, it's that human contact. And it absolutely blew their minds. And that's what we that's the reality we want. We want. We want that human reality. We want those connections. There's no substitute for it. And that's what they loved. And I think, you know, but you have to have that experience because you don't know what you're missing otherwise. So Yeah, that's a really good place to stop. I know we've been talking for an, over an hour. Uh, and <laughs> you remind me of um, Augustine or Augustine, who said that truth is like a lion. You don't need to defend the truth. You just need to let it out of its cage and it'll it'll do yeah. its own work. Um, for it. So I, I think we've really explained idolatry in a fruitful and helpful way. I think we could have a whole second discussion another time about uh, the remedies. Sure. I would love to, well, first of all, thank you so much. It's been a tremendous pleasure to talk with you and to read, to read Same your here. articles. Um, our listeners will find the articles we referred to down below in the hyperlinks. And um, Professor Howland, would you uh, close with a blessing for our listeners and their families in our troubled world? You bet. So I'm going to uh, say a very brief prayer, which is known as the Shehechianu. It's a Jewish prayer. And it's a prayer of gratitude. And it's often connected with renewal, um, new life, for example, baby naming ceremonies and stuff like this. And I think that in our time, we need to be reminded of the gifts that we've been mm -hmm. given and, and to express our thanks. And by the way, um, I'm pleased, you know, I, I love Plato. And in Plato's Republic, there's in book two, there's a city that Glaucon calls the city of pigs, but I call it the true and healthy city. <laughs> and the, the human beings, you know, they drink wine in moderation. They, 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 they sort of all the generations and families are there. And he says, they sing hymns to the gods, sing hymns of thanks to the gods, right? So this is a prayer of gratitude. It's a very ancient and pure form of prayer. And it goes like this. Baruch atah which basically means, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, who's kept us alive, sustained us, and allowed us to reach this day. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. This has been wonderful. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. Chris Odinius and Jacob Howland recorded this conversation, episode 65, on Thursday, August 3rd, 2023. 
That's the feast of Nicodemus, the Pharisee who met with Jesus in the Gospel of John and defended him before the Sanhedrin and finally prepared him for burial with Joseph of Arimathea. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is from a window at Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. Please email me with comments, questions, ideas for future episodes at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I answer every email. I thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Come on in, come on in. I'm not live, I'm just recording. Hello. Hi, Koba. <laughs> Can I see me? I'm, I'm loud. Testing, it's testing, too, one, it's two, loud. three. It's too loud, it's going to come out too loud. Testing, testing, one, two, three. All right, ready? I am the best. Thanks, kid. <laughs> <laughs>